Good morning, everybody. I am so very glad we got so many visitors here this morning. Uh, if this is your first time, you are uh, our honored guest. You've made our day by being here. If it's your second or third time, well, even better. Thanks for coming back. Uh, we are traveling through the Gospel of John together. We've been doing so for some time. And last week we got to John chapter 8 and verses 31 and 32. So we're in the middle of John chapter 8 and we've been focusing in on really just a handful of verses. And last week we focused in on truth. And so I want to invite you this morning to continue on. A couple things before we get started. Uh, number one is if you find this lesson encouraging or challenging or useful in any way and you'd like to go back and catch up, you can find those past lessons on our Facebook page, on our YouTube channel, or if you prefer, uh, in audio format, I've been told I have a face for radio, so we even have a podcast, and you can go back and find them on the podcast and listen to them as you get time. The other thing I want to mention real quick is uh, Michael would ask that all the parents that have youth group age children, so that's sixth grade and up, uh, whether you're currently involved in the youth group or not, if you would like more information, uh, please come to the stage immediately after service today. He's just going to have a, a quick meeting regarding some plans for the future and how you might be able to get your kids more involved in that. So please remember that. Any parents with kids 6th grade to 12th grade, you're invited to join that meeting immediately after worship this morning. So we're in John chapter 8, and last week in verses 31 and 32... We talked about what Jesus says here to the Jews who had believed in him. So this is a specific group of people that he's addressing at this moment. This isn't the Israelites who had already come to the conclusion that they wanted him dead, as some had. This is a group of people who had put their belief in him. They have been convicted by what he has said, and they're starting to place their hope in him as Messiah. And so to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching." You really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so last week, what we did is we spent most of our time thinking a little more critically about the concept of truth. And we came to the conclusion that truth is not an abstract idea that exists apart from Jesus. Jesus is truth. And so the invitation into a more intimate knowledge of truth is really an invitation into a more intimate relationship with Jesus. And that's what we talked about last week. But I ended my lesson with a question. He says, you will know the truth and the truth will do what? The truth will set you free. So the question I asked is, free from what? Exactly what is Jesus offering freedom from and why would we need freedom to begin with? And so that's what I'd like us to think about collectively this morning. And as we do that, I'd like to invite you to think about a journey that I think all of us take. Some of us have already taken the journey. Some might just be beginning it. But a journey we all take as we come to the understanding of what our situation is and how it is that Jesus offers us hope in the midst of our current situation. So I'll explain that as we go on. What I find most interesting, and to be honest, for a very long time, I found this passage very fascinating and very challenging because of the way that these people react to what Jesus says. Again, remember, the group of people he's addressing now are not opponents. They're those who've already come to some belief in him. And yet their reaction is one of offense. They take offense at what Jesus is offering them. You will know the truth and the truth will set you Free And instead of saying, yes, we've been looking for freedom, this is their initial reaction. They answered him. We are offspring of Abraham. 
and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? I want you to think about this for just a moment. How is it that they could come to the conclusion, as Israelites, as children of Abraham, that they have never been enslaved to anyone? If you know your Bible history at all, is that a factual statement? That the children of Israel had never been enslaved to anyone? No, of course it isn't. In fact, if you go back and you look at their very identity, what it was that made them people, their identity is wrapped up in one major historical event, the Exodus. Go back to the book of Exodus and you read in Exodus chapter 1 as it's setting the stage for this story. Of course, we know through God's providence that Joseph led his brothers and his father to Egypt so that they could be provided for. And when they first got there, they enjoyed great privilege in the land of Egypt because of Joseph's position. But over time, a new Pharaoh rose to power. And he began to resent the Israelites because they were growing in number. And so he turned them into slaves. If you read Exodus chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, and this sets the stage for the whole drama that unfolds in the book of Exodus. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This is the foundation for the Exodus story. Do the Israelites Jesus is talking to in John chapter 8 know this history? Of course they know this history. So how could they with a straight face say, we've never been enslaved to anyone? How could they say that? Well, because they had convinced themselves that their situation was different than it really was. They were ignorant of their reality. And so this is kind of step two in the process. At first, we take offense at the offer, and you think about it in terms of salvation. You share the gospel message with people, and I'm sure you've had this experience before. Maybe it was your experience the first time you heard the gospel message shared, that you can be saved. Well, what do I need to be saved for? I'm not in need of salvation, right? It's, it's an offensive reaction at first. I don't need what you're telling me you have to offer me. And that's exactly what their reaction is here. I don't need what you're offering me. We don't need to be set free because we've never been enslaved to anyone. But the reason they were in that delusional state of mind is because they were ignorant of their actual reality. And that's a, that's a, a condition that plagues all of humanity. We are not very good at being honest with ourselves, are we? And we're very good at convincing ourselves that we're not all that bad off. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. This is God speaking to the Israelites, and he's reminding them, now looking back on the Exodus, about why it was that he called them into covenant relationship with him. And it says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. Why did I pick you? Well, we know why. It's because of the covenant he made with Abraham, correct? He didn't pick them because they were the biggest, strongest, wealthiest population of people on the planet. They were far from that. He says, uh, uh, and it wasn't because you were more in number than any other people, but because you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with mighty hand and redeemed you. I saved you from something. What was it that God saved them from? From the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. But for whatever reason, this group of people in John chapter 8 is refusing to acknowledge their reality. 
Their very history is tied up in the fact that they did suffer slavery. And yet they stand with a straight face and tell Jesus, we've never been enslaved to anyone. If you look at Nehemiah chapter 9, and I'd invite you to turn over there, please. I want to look at a section out of Nehemiah chapter 9. We actually referenced this a few weeks ago when we were back in chapter 7, John chapter 7, we were talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. And the reason this is relevant is because now the children of Israel, they've been taken away into slavery yet again by the Babylonians at this point in history. But then God rose up a king from Persia. So the Persians conquered the Babylonians. They're now in power. They inherit, as it were, these Jewish slaves. And they send part of the population of Israelite slaves back to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls of the city. And it offers them a, a type of freedom they hadn't enjoyed in some time. And so after they are nearly complete with this rebuilding process, they take an opportunity to reflect on their own history. And so what's happening on this day is that the law is being read out loud and the people are confessing their sins out loud. As they're reflecting on the law and their own history, they are in humility acknowledging their own sinfulness and the sinfulness of their ancestors. And they're acknowledging the fact that it wasn't God's doing, but their own doing that led them to their current situation. And all this is happening on the heels of the first Feast of Tabernacles that they were able to celebrate in many, many generations. And so in the middle of this chapter in Nehemiah chapter 9, I would just invite you to think about the difference in attitude between the Israelites here in Nehemiah chapter 9 and the group of Israelites that Jesus is addressing in John chapter 8. One group refuses to acknowledge their situation. This group in humility confesses their situation. So in Nehemiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 32, Now therefore, our God, the great God, the mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling to your eyes, the hardship that has come on us, on our kings and our leaders, on our priests and prophets and on our ancestors and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. Don't overlook what we have gone through, is what they're saying. But then they say this in verse 33, In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully, while we have acted wickedly. What an attitude to have. And it's that attitude that eventually we need to be led to, but these people in John chapter 8 aren't there yet. They're still in that place where they're taking offense at the offer, and they're ignorant of their current reality. This group of people, however, in humility has been brought low, and they acknowledge to God, please don't forget our situation, but we acknowledge you are always righteous. We're the ones who did wrong. Verse 34, our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you warned them to keep, even while they were in, your, in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them. They did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. And so this is their conclusion. But see, we are what? Slaves today. Now, they were enjoying, like I said, a level of freedom they hadn't enjoyed in some time, but they were still there under the authority and privilege of a foreign power. They were not free 
like the ancient Israelites had been free. And they acknowledge that, and they acknowledge that it's their own doing. But see, we are slaves today. Slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundance harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. You see the difference in the mindset between a group of people. We are slaves. We are in great distress. Only you can rescue us. And a group of people who won't even acknowledge their slavery to begin with. Or the fact that slavery even made up a part of their history. We've never been enslaved to anyone. What a shocking thing that people could be that ignorant of their reality. But we are so good at doing that as people today, aren't we? Aren't we? We are very good at convincing ourselves that we are in a different situation than we are actually in. And so, once you move past that, you start to get in the justification process. All right, I'm ignorant of my reality, but once somebody tells me I'm in a situation I don't want to be in, instead of acknowledging that, the first thing I have to do is I have to convince myself of my own justification. So this is one of the ways that we justify ourselves. And again... We are experts at this as people, justifying ourselves. In Luke chapter 13, turn over there if you would. Luke chapter 13, I'm going to read the first five verses. Jesus is using uh, current events as a way to illustrate something about the way people think. This is kind of one of those torn from the headlines moments, right? He's speaking to something significant that had happened. It's not recorded for us historically outside of the Bible, so we don't know exactly what he's talking about. But this is what he says. Now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now again, that's not recorded for us, but just read what it says. That's a horrific thing to have happen. Pilate had mixed their blood with their sacrifices, and people had seen that, and they're clearly trying to come to terms with how that kind of evil could happen. And so this is Jesus' response to them. In verse 2, Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans that suffered that fate were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? So the way of thinking was, if bad things happen to people, those things happen because they're bad people. That's an easy way to try to kind of bifurcate the way that terrible things happen to people in the world around us, but is that the way you look at the world around you? You ever had anything terrible out of your control happen to you? Have you questioned why? Is your go-to response, I must have done something evil and so I deserve this? If your way of looking at the world is, all right, these people over here are clearly worse off than I am because they've suffered a worse fate, then it's easy to do what? To justify yourself. I'm good because something bad hasn't happened to me yet. And that's exactly the attitude Jesus is addressing here. Do you really think it's because they were worse sinners than anyone else that that's what happened to them? And then listen to his response. Verse 3, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. He goes on, or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Another event we don't have recorded for us, but apparently it happened and they were thinking about it. Do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You ever get in the habit of getting really good at picking out other people's sins? Anybody? 
Anybody guilty of that? Okay. We, we are very good at that. We're very good at self-justification, justifying ourselves. Yes, I know there are terrible people in the world, and God help those people, but I'm not one of them. And I think that's what these people are struggling with in John chapter 8. Yeah, there's people enslaved, and they might need freedom, but we are Abraham's descendants. We don't need what you're offering right now. We've found a way to justify ourselves. And it's this process of self-justification that can blind us to our current reality. And then something happens eventually to some people. Some people, finally, the Spirit breaks through the hardness of their heart, and they move past all of that, and they stop justifying, and the conviction process takes over. And they are convicted now by their sin. Some people hear the call to repentance, and they realize that they are in need of it, and they're convicted by their own sin. Look what happens in John chapter 8 now. If we pick up in verse 34, Jesus answered them, so their response is, why would we need freedom when we've never been enslaved to anyone? This is his response. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So he's not even necessarily talking about the history of their people. He's not talking about physically being enslaved to anyone. He's talking about the slavery that comes from what? Sin. He's talking about spiritual slavery. And he says, I'm telling you, the truth is, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And so the question is, who practices sin? All of us do. And so all of us are enslaved to sin. But is that a truth that you are in a position to recognize right now, this morning? Are you willing to recognize that fact that apart from the salvation God offers, you are enslaved to sin right now. Some of you are ready to hear that. Some of you are convicted by that reality. Some of us might not be there yet. Some of us might be in this early process where we're offended by the idea or we're in denial and we're started to justify ourselves in some way. But others are here. The Spirit's worked on their heart and they're convicted by their sin. In Romans chapter 3, you turn over there, Romans chapter 3. It's a passage I know some of you are very familiar with, but I want to remind you of what it says. Let's pick up in verse 9. Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. In this chapter, Paul is addressing a conflict that exists in the Roman church between the Jewish population and the Gentile population. And he's trying to make the case that neither one of them are in better standing before God just because of their ethnic background. Jews occupied a very privileged place in the history of God's working with mankind, but that doesn't grant them any kind of special privilege now. And so this is what he says, What shall we conclude then? Do we have any real advantage? Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. And then he says this, as it is written, and he puts together this string of quotes from both the Psalms and the prophets to make the case that humans, humanity, all of us, whether Jew or Gentile, are all suffering the same problem. And so he says this, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. No, not one. 
Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one, pay attention to this verse, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. What is it that finally breaks through our delusions and convicts us of the reality of our situation? It's the confrontation we have with God's law. When we read the law and we see how short we fall of what God had in mind for us from the beginning, and we realize that exactly what Paul is writing here is true, that none of us is good on our own. None of us is righteous on our own. All of us, as he's about to say in a minute, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Only God's law can convict us of that reality. We have become so good at justifying human wickedness. There is not a destructive human behavior that we have not found a way to justify today. We found a way to justify all of it. Feeling guilty about something you've done, there's someone out there who will tell you you are fine. We've become so good at justifying our wickedness and our evil. But when you come face to face with the law, if you have ears to hear, then what happens? You're convicted by that sin. The sin becomes for us the mirror that we so desperately need. Mirrors can be difficult things to look in, can't they? I don't know. Maybe sometimes you look in the mirror and you're like, <laughs> looking pretty good today. <laughs> <All right. laughs> but more often than not, if you're honest with yourselves, how many of you struggle with self-image? How many of you looked in the mirror even this morning and you thought, I wish there were a few less wrinkles. I wish there was a few less gray hairs. I wish there were a few less pounds around the midsection. Right? You look in the mirror and suddenly you're face to face with who you really are. You walk away from the mirror, you go out into the world and, and what happens? Now you're looking at everyone else's flaws. And it's easy to, to focus in on everyone else's flaws, but then when you find the mirror again, what happens? Okay, look, I would like to lose a little weight. I would like to go back to the way I looked a long time. I almost put a picture up here of how skinny I used to be, but I don't want use that used against me, so I decided not to do that. Right? But I recognize that I need to drop a few pounds. But there's a difference between me looking in the mirror and coming to terms with that on my own and me... You know, we're about to go to downtown Disney. We're taking a few days off. We're going to go to downtown Disney. I'm sure it's going to be packed. If some stranger came up to me and they said, hey, man, you really need to lose a few pounds and I can help you with that. <laughs> what, what would I do? I would first, I would get offended, wouldn't I? Then I would deny my situation. Then I would justify my situation. I would go through the same process, wouldn't I? Because that person's in no position to tell me that. And that's what happens when we first encounter Christ. This is what happens to everyone when they first encounter the offer of salvation is they go through that process because who are you that you get to tell me I'm in need of anything? And who are you that thinks you can help me with it? 
But that mirror does something valuable for us. And the law is that mirror. When we look into the law, what comes back at us? It's our own shortcomings and our own sinfulness. And now we're convicted. We need that mirror in our lives. In James chapter 1, 22 through 24, be doers of the word, James says, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the law becomes that mirror that we can never put away. Because as long as we know that our sin is present, what happens? That conviction takes over. And what happens next? It becomes this burden that's too big to bear, doesn't it? When you are convicted by sin, but offered no hope of justification, because this is what Paul says here in Romans chapter 3. What does the law do? It convicts us of sin, but what can it not do? It can't justify us. The law does not offer justification. No one will stand before God justified by the law. The law convicts, but it does not justify. So in this process that we undergo, there gets to a point where your heart finally becomes soft enough. You realize your own sinfulness, and now that weight bears down on you. And it is an enormous burden, isn't it? The burden of sinfulness, knowing that you have fallen short. And it can be suffocating. And it can be even crippling at times if there's no hope offered. If all you have is a conviction but no hope, we're left handicapped by the weight of that conviction. And that's a terrible place to leave off, isn't it? It's one thing to be convicted of sin. It's another thing entirely to be freed from it. Conviction of sin places weight on us. Freedom from sin does what? Takes the weight off. Once you've been convicted, then the only thing in the world you want is an answer, is hope, is freedom. It's amazing how this group of people in John chapter 8, in this moment, deny that they even need what Jesus is offering. But you know what happened to the Israelite people? Probably some of these very people in that crowd. You skip forward to Acts chapter 2, post-resurrection now as they've seen the things that took place at the crucifixion, if they heard the reports of the empty tomb, as they're trying to figure out what has happened concerning this man Jesus, now they're in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit falls on the disciples, and Peter gets up and he begins preaching, and the conclusion of his sermon is what? Know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Savior, this Jesus whom, what? You remember? You crucified. Talk about the weight of sin. You killed the Messiah you were waiting for. And in that moment, what does it say in the book of Acts? They were pierced in the heart. They were heartbroken. That's what sin does when we're convicted of it. We are heartbroken. And what do they ask? What do we do? What do we do? This is where law leads us. It leads us to that point of conviction where we're asking the question desperately, what do we do? Well, what do we do? There's a difference between diagnosis and cure. It was uh, eight years ago this month that Robin was five months pregnant with Paisley, took a day off, 
I had a, a, a wonderful date day, went up to the Huntington Gardens, beautiful early fall weather, went out to dinner afterwards, then went to a movie. Sometime during the movie, I started to feel really ill. You know, you get that virusy feeling where you start to get kind of shaky and, and weird. And I could feel myself sweating. And uh, as soon as the movie was over, I said, we, we got to get home. So I drove home and basically passed out on the bed. Next morning, I woke up early in incredible pain. And I have had kidney stones several times in my life. I know some of you have had them before. Not a lot of fun, huh? A lot of pain. So I woke up and I thought, okay, another kidney stone. I woke Robin up. I said, I'm sorry, you got to get me to the ER. And on the way there, I thought, you know, this is a different kind of pain. It's a little higher than normal. And so she made me tell them when I checked in, I think I have a kidney stone, but it, it hurts in my chest. And so they took that seriously, right? Got me in there, hooked me up to all kinds of machines, started doing blood work. And I can remember for like the first half hour, me arguing with the staff in the ER that it's just a kidney stone. Just give me some pain meds and I'll be fine. But they were taking it more seriously, and I couldn't figure out exactly what. And finally, the ER doctor came in, and he said, we've run some tests, and there's been damage to your heart. And I, I was just totally thrown off guard by that. Right? And I remember arguing with him now. No, it's a kidney stone, I promise. <laughs> right? And finally, I just asked him, I said, well, what are you telling me? Because I wasn't hearing what I was trying to get across. He said, you've had a heart attack. And I can remember in that moment just refusing to acknowledge that reality. I was 36 years old. I was in excellent shape. I used to ride to the top of Mount Baldy on my bike once a week, sometimes twice because it wasn't enough. I'm, how am I having a heart attack? And I can remember what happened after that. So, you know, first I'm in denial, right? No, that's not the situation. And then it begins to sink in. Okay, I've got a diagnosis now. But trying to make sense out of that, and I was so worried about Robin because she was pregnant, I, I just told her, I'm fine, go home for the night. So now I'm alone in a hospital room by myself, and I, I tell you, it was the longest night of my life. And if you've ever had a diagnosis like that, something scary, what happens? Anxiety takes over, right? This, this burden, and you just want answers. That's all you want desperately is answers. And I had such a sweet nurse that night, and she did everything she could to make sure I was comfortable, but she couldn't offer me anything but comfort. I, I needed answers in that moment. I needed hope. I needed to know what we're going to do moving forward. How bad is it? Am I going to survive? Is my life going to be the same? You know, what is going to happen moving forward? And all that night, I was just overwhelmed by the fact that I had a diagnosis, but no hope for a cure. And then the next morning, a cardiologist came in, Dr. Lee. Just talked to them this last week. And he came in and he said, you've had a heart attack. We don't know why. We're going to do a heart catheterization. We're going to put a camera into your heart so we can see what's going on. And they went through that process. And he was finally able to diagnose me and offer me some hope. But it took a physician with the ability to look into my heart, to give me a diagnosis, and to offer me any kind of hope. And this is the process we all go through as we come to terms with the message of the gospel, that we are all guilty of sin, we are lost in sin, and we are hopeless because of sin. But there is a physician who has the ability to look into our hearts and to offer us not just a diagnosis, a diagnosis we don't want to hear, one that's hard to come to terms with, 
but hope beyond the diagnosis. What Jesus is telling us in this text is that, yes, we struggle with something we don't want to acknowledge. We are slaves to sin, but he doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us with the weight of of conviction, with the weight of diagnosis, but no cure and no hope. What he's telling us here in this passage is that he offers us what no one else can. And I'll take you back to Romans before we wind up in John one more time. So in Romans chapter 3, this time go down to verse 21. But now apart from the law, what did the law do? It convicted us and it shows us our sinfulness, but it cannot bring what? Justification. But now apart from the law, Paul says, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's where law gets us. But we preach the gospel, and what is the gospel? Good news. You have fallen short of the glory of God is not good news. That's just reality. That's the diagnosis. Where is the good news? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Here's the good news, verse 24. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. That's the good news. And that's what Jesus is trying to get this group of Israelites in John chapter 8 to understand. Yes, I know you don't want to hear this, but you are enslaved to sin. I didn't come just to condemn you. I didn't come just to offer you a diagnosis. I came to set you what? Free. To set you free. And this is what he says. The slave does not remain in the house forever. In a world where slavery was very much a real thing. If you found yourself enslaved and in the service of a family, say you're a household slave for a wealthy family in in the first century world, you do not have the legal right or authority to declare yourself free. You don't get to go in one day and say, you know what, I've had enough of this slavery thing. I am free from this moment on. See ya. It doesn't work that way. But the son in that household, he can do for you what you can't do for yourself. The slave doesn't remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So the son has the legal authority to do what? To declare you free. So if the son sets you free, you will be what? Free indeed. This isn't the facade of freedom. This isn't the illusion of freedom. This is real freedom. And this group of people at this moment in time is not ready for all this yet. But Jesus is planting the seed for the gospel. And after they heard about the fact that they were guilty of putting to death the very one they had been waiting for, and they asked the question, what do we do? Here it comes again, the good news. Even a group of people that Peter points the finger at and says, you crucified Lord and Savior Jesus. Even to that group of people. He then says what? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And this is the reality of the God that we serve. And this is what Jesus is explaining to us in John chapter 8. That his grace is bigger than our sin. I hope you are at a point 
or that is moving to you. But I don't know where you're at this morning. Maybe you're at that place where the very offer of salvation is still offensive to you because you refuse to acknowledge that you need it. Maybe you've come to terms with your sinfulness, but you're still burdened by the weight of that conviction, and you're looking for an answer. Well, here it is. Maybe you've already come to terms with the fact that Jesus provides the only answer that you need. Are you exuberant in that reality? Are you joyful in the acknowledgement of the gift that he offers you? Wherever you're at in your journey this morning, if you look at this process, wherever you're at in that process, won't you take a moment this morning to reflect and to think critically? One of the other things James does for us in his little epistle is he encourages us to confess our sins to each other. Oh, we have different mechanisms for doing that. Sometimes we offer an invitation and we invite people to come forward, and I fully understand the desire to not come forward sometimes, right? Sometimes I, I just I, I don't want everybody to be up in my business. But I want to ask you, if, if you think about what we're talking about here, the fact that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, if we're all willing to acknowledge that reality, then can't we work on developing a different kind of culture here in this family where it's okay to say to the people in this room, I've fallen short, knowing that they have as well? You talk about facades. You talk about faking it. You talk about pretending that your current situation isn't what it really is. That's what we do too often in the church today. We come in and we pretend like everything is fine. Sometimes everything is not fine. And I just want to give you full permission this morning that as we stand and we sing this song, if you are in a place where everything is not fine, won't you let us know that we can surround you with love, that we can pray with you, that we can encourage you, and that we can remind you of the hope that lives inside all of us. That yes, I am enslaved, but I have been set free by the Son. And when the Son says I'm free, I am free indeed. Won't you stand and sing this song? Let us know if we can serve you in any way. I sing, Lord.